Welcome to Pouring Over Pages, a podcast of words and wine. I'm Alexa. And I'm Maritza. Woo, let's get lit on literature. Yes. I love that. I love that line. <laughs> I love that we stuck with that line. It's a good one. Um, here we are with episode eight, and this one is wildly different than our last episode. Yeah, and I'm super pleased to report that me and Alexa both loved the book. <laughs> yeah, we did, we did. It was a good one. Since last time, you know, we had a, a difference of opinion, which made for great conversation. But we both really, really loved this book. This is I Love You, But I've Chosen Darkness by Claire Vey Watkins. This is a, a, a new release book. It came out in October. So it's been out for just just over a month, I think. Um, this is really um, a very, very unique book, not only in terms of its content, which we'll dive into, but also the way that it's written. Mm -hmm. um, it's a combination of auto-fictional narrative. So some of these things the author actually experienced, the name of the main character is Claire Bay Watkins. But it also consists of letters that her mother wrote. And these might be the fictional or, or the portion, more fictional maybe. portion. We don't really know. She doesn't really give us too much detail in terms of what was real and what was not real. So it's up to the reader to decide <laughs> and to assume, which is which is unique and strange, but but it was enjoyable. Yeah, it was very enjoyable. It made me feel kind of like that game, uh, Two Truths and a Lie, trying yes. to sniff out what was the lie in here. And I don't know if I'd want people to think those lies about me were true or not, but we'll we'll get into that and see. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how honest I would want to be <laughs> if I ever wrote a book like this. But I have to say, I mean, it's it's incredibly brave. I I think that what the author did, what Claire V. Watkins did, was create a really, really unique story that is very, very gripping. But, you know, I should admit from the very beginning, this is a pretty tough read, I think. It's mm -hmm. it's a it's a difficult read. It's a disturbing read. There yes. are there are scenes um that I think make things a little uncomfortable for the reader. Um, sometimes when you're reading about someone and they're being so raw and honest about their own experiences, it can feel like a mirror. Yeah. At least it felt that way to me. Same. And that can be hard. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack and reflect on there and, and relate to in, in varying degrees, but yes, definitely a mirror there. Yeah. So if you, if you do pick up this book, I highly recommend that you be, um, just open to the idea of a book being a mirror to you because this, I didn't realize that it would be, but it kind of forces itself on you, I think, in a, in a really cool way. Uh, before we dive into a very quick summary so that you all can uh, tag along with us, uh, Alexa, why don't you tell us what we are sipping this evening? Yes, we are sipping on a white wine from Rueda in Spain. Um, it's actually a Verdejo to be um, accurate. And the name of the wine is Oinos. 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 O-I-N-O-Z. Z, yes. And I have a big love for the, the Rueda region. So we'll dive more into why I chose this wine and related it to this book. Yeah, this is absolutely delicious. Cheers. Thanks, Yay! Alexa, for the pairing. It's actually the wine is currently resting on my copy of I Love You But I've Chosen Darkness. We need to soundproof a little here. We do. We need to soundproof. We're in a, we're in a new location, so we're, mm -hmm. please excuse any uh, strange sounds that we can't edit out. And by we, I mean Alexa. 
I'll try my best, but it, it's pretty quiet here. It's pretty, pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah, I'm very pleased. So, I Love You, But I've Chosen Darkness by Claire Vey Watkins. This is the story of a woman, presumably the author herself, and she is going through some shit. Yeah, major right? shit. Major shit. We start off by learning a little bit about her. We know that she's an author, um, an academic, a public speaker, a writer, and she has recently had a baby. And she gets invited to a speaking um, convention or some sort of speaking engagement. And when she flies home to Reno, Reno was home for her. It was her hometown. She spirals a little bit Mm -hmm. and she decides to stay in Reno for a bit and then travel over to Las Vegas, which is a city that she had sworn she would never go back to. And as the book unfolds, you learn why. Right. But essentially, this is a coming back home story to face your childhood and adolescent trauma, I think. And she is also suffering from a spiraling case of postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of the book, at least my interpretation was that she kind of had it all together. Right. She's a successful professor, academic writer. She's getting invited to the speaking engagement. I'm just assuming that she's got it together yeah right that she's got her stuff and instead what we realize is that at the first opportunity that she had to really get away she spirals sort of out of control and abandons her husband and her baby for i believe the book takes place in like almost a year or so it's like at least it's like at least a couple of months but i think it's almost a year that she's gone i mean she misses her baby's first birthday all these things so this is a woman who decides to abandon her family and I don't and I don't mean to say that in like a flippant way and I definitely not in a judgmental way because I actually have a lot of sympathy for the character but she chooses to leave in order to tap into who she really is and the trauma that had been harbored inside of her and just you know set herself straight in a sense get her get her head right (laughs) yeah just acknowledge all the shit that happened and how it turned her into who she is and how she can, you know, just be brave enough to face it. Yeah. I think that's really the kind of moral of the story. I think so. In a I way. think that's a great uh, summary of, of everything <laughs> that yeah. happened. Yeah. And one of the things that I loved the most about this book is that it touches on the theme of like the vilification of women. Mm-hmm. And this is part of the reason why we really wanted to read this book and have this discussion is because it's so easy to vilify women for so many reasons in so many ways, right? But for for this particular, you know, for this particular book and this narrative, I would say that we can focus on, at least start with, the vilification of the woman who chooses to leave her family. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure so many people are thinking, how could she even, she has a newborn, she should be at home, happy with her family, but yeah, life had other plans for her there. Right, and how often do we make those judgment calls Mm -hmm. on women when we don't know anything about their life, their trauma? I mean, I was—we were even discussing this the other day. I mean, the amount of women who in who who throughout history have probably suffered from postpartum depression and had no idea because there was no name for it, Mm -hmm. and you just call women hysterical or selfish or crazy—you know, all the words that women hear all the time, right? For all sorts of things. 
But the, the vilification of women, I think, is a really central theme in this book. Yeah. And I'll start with a very weird metaphor in the book that we that we learn about very early on. And that is that she discovers that she has teeth <laughs> growing inside of her vagina. Mind you, this is a few pages in. This it's isn't like very pages far in. into yeah. the book. And you're like, wait, what you're the like, fuck am I reading? This is a very personal book. Very personal. I mean, she's going to tell you a lot about herself. Let's just put it that so way. Much. without Without spoiling too much. But this metaphor of like the teeth in the vagina is this, I think, uh, a representation of that vilification mm-hmm. of women and of our bodies. And that when we don't do things the way that society asks us to or forces us to, that we become this monster that needs to be tamed or caged. Mm-hmm or controlled yeah and the fact that she could not be controlled any longer by these societal norms that's what causes her eventually to sort of spiral out of control and 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 jump ship and jump ship essentially and and throughout the book i found myself really kind of horrified by the conditions of her childhood yeah. and you know you learn a lot about how she grew up I mean this was a, a poor family very poor and a family that struggled a lot her parents were kind of hippie-ish very very kind of crazy and kind of all over the place and so she grew up with a lot of instability mm-hmm. right I'll put it that way so I have a lot of sympathy for her because a lot of that childhood trauma was never resolved and I think she does a really great way of acknowledging it Later on, uh, once she starts coming to terms with it, that trip to Vegas and to Reno was necessary in order for her to come to terms with a lot of that childhood trauma. But there's no way that we can avoid talking about the Charles Manson plot twist. (laughs) That was wild. Yes, this is the second book, I want to say, where we have a cult involved. Yep. Um, And it's quite fascinating. fascinating. Yeah, her father was part of the Charles Manson cult. And um, the family, the family, capital F. Capital F. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we learn a lot about him, and she uses a lot of um, quotes from his book about right. it to, um, you know, weave throughout her story that gives us a better pic- picture of her life. And and that if, part's not fictional. We know that. Yeah, her father actually was a part of the Charles Manson family. He was not involved in the helter skelter. Murders. Yeah, he didn't murder anyone, luckily. But but he, he was still a fucking pig. He's not innocent. <laughs> he was one of Charles Manson's uh, guys who would bring young girls yeah. into the cult. He would essentially go hunt for mm-hmm. underage girls right. at the high school to right. bring them into the cult so they could, yeah. So yeah, he was yeah. a real piece of shit. And Awful. what what I realize is that that, inevitably, when you find out that your father did something like that. That also has to affect your psyche as a young woman, right? It's her and her sister. And then her mother has another daughter later in her second marriage. So it's yeah. all these, you know, young women. And I think that inevitably, once she was old enough to understand what her fa- what her father was doing, that that's going to affect her psyche and her sense of worth and her so- sense of self-understanding, right? I mean, yeah. There's, there's no this way is, that it can't. No, this is uh, daddy issues to the nth degree. Yeah. This is, I mean, how could you come back from that thinking, I'm sure that, you know, your dad is you know, the apple of your eye, your whole world, you're supposed to feel protected and safe and loved by him. And then you realize there's this really dark and evil 
part of him that Mm -hmm. he just did that without any issues and you're you know gonna be of that same age one day and it's just really eye-opening and and terrifying yeah that was one of the more terrifying parts of the book i think and and her her description of her father and and everything that he did is also fairly early in the book yeah so you're already getting a sense of who she grew up around and what she was exposed to and what her truth was as as a young person and you're already feeling sympathy, I think, from the very beginning. Yeah. It's hard not to. I think that was well done, too, because, you know, it's hard, as you know, people living in society not to judge that she's trying to leave her family right away, like when you start reading the book. But the second you see that story of her father and just learn more into her childhood really quick, you automatically turn the knob and you're like, oh, okay. Right. Oof, sorry. Right. Never mind. And I mean, I think that in a nutshell, you know, this book is just proof that whenever we do put our judgments on other women for, you know, whatever it is that they choose to do within motherhood, within a family structure, whatever it may be, that we're never doing it with any semblance of information. Mm-hmm. Because this is a what three hundred page less less right? less yeah it's like two hundred eighty yeah, pages yeah. or something and we still don't know the whole story but at no. least in two hundred and eighty pages I got a sense of some of the trauma and why it was so necessary for her to go back home yeah and for her to reconnect with the Tacopa house let's talk about the Tacopa house yes so <laughs> they moved into this home that was a complete you call it. yeah you can yeah. call it a home and it was it was it's like a shack it was like a total mess middle of the desert middle of the desert out of nowhere right like there's yeah. no one around there's, there's no water neighbors. there's no electricity there's crazy. nothing crazy and it's in this tiny town called Tacopa and we find out early on in the book that she finds out that Claire finds out that they're gonna knock the house mm-hmm. down and she's like, I don't want to tell my sister because my sister's emotionally attached to the place and it's going to hurt her feelings, whatever. She later on does end up telling her and they go mm-hmm. to the Tacopa house. And at that point, it's it's rubble. Yeah, it's right? essentially nothing. I mean, there was barely anything to start with. So at right. this point, it's rubble. Yeah. So what's left is remnants of their past, remnants of their home. You see... I think that she describes that there are like mattress springs and like the old DVD cases are like broken and dusted and things like that. You can just imagine sort of a pile of like, of debris of what your home would be if someone knocked it yeah. over. And her going back to the Tacopa house and, and, and spoiler alert, but not really, she does spend quite a bit of time there. Yeah. And that's where she does a lot of her self-reflecting. And one of the moments that I really appreciate is when she she's talking about how, you know, she left her, her daughter behind, yeah. right? Uh, she left her behind with her father in Chicago. Right? Yes, I believe it was Chicago. In Chicago. So what she says is, I regret preparing the way that I did to have you. I bought so much stuff, right? I just bought things for you. When what I really what I really should have done is this, meaning come back here, reflect, look at my life, look at myself, figure out what was wrong. Because that was the only way that she could possibly begin to heal. Yeah. Consumer culture. Let me fill the hole in my heart with a bunch of shit. Right. And hope that that solves it. Yeah. Let me buy the baby a whole bunch of shit it probably doesn't need to make me feel like the better mom because I know that I'm going to fail in some ways. And, you know, and that's the other thing too is like, I'm not a mom, you're not a mom, but I can also, you know, I can attest like all moms like, 
you know, they, and I say this in quotes, fail, right? Like there's no perfect way to do it. No. But the standard that she had set for herself was so unrealistic because I think her childhood was so traumatic that she wanted to create stability. She wanted to create the sort of, you know, stereotypical, positive home. And instead she spiraled because she herself couldn't yeah, handle Yeah, she that. self-sabotaged herself right. with trying to, to come up with this perfect childhood and birth plan and getting the baby home because she didn't have that. And and it's sad that that's kind of the tipping point for her, that we think she has it together. And this baby that comes into the world that you think would be a happy moment for her has been an absolute miserable part of her life. Right. And there's a, there's a quote in the book that I think sums up exactly what you just said. She says, motherhood had cracked me in half. Myself as a mother and myself as not were two different people, distinct. Mm-hmm. That's terrifying. That's, that's super scary. It's terrifying. Because I think, you know, you don't want to find that out after, after you have your baby. You can't just take your baby to the fire, you know, fire station and be like, here, drop it off in a basket and, and, and peace right. out. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking from complete ignorance, right? I don't know that moms generally feel that way or commonly feel this way, that they're, that who they are on their own and then who they are as a mother are two different people. I don't know. I, I can't claim to know or to understand. But what I do know is that if, if you have some semblance of bravery for self-reflection, which some people do, some people don't. And me and you have always encouraged that as much Mm -hmm. as we can. Um, You know, episode one set the tone for us with, with Glennon Doyle. It set the tone for us to try and always bring that up in episodes that this idea that books should serve as a way for you to self-reflect and for you to understand yourself. My hope would be that, that you know yourself well enough to know whether or not this is something you can do and this is something that you want to do. Yeah, that you listen to your knowing, as right. Glennon would say. Right. And not to all the societal norms that make you quote unquote successful, right? Yeah. Like there's this trajectory that you go to school, you find a good job, you get married, you have a kid. What if that's not what everybody wants to do? Exactly. We're more forgiving of men when they don't mm-hmm. want to do those things, but we're not very forgiving of women when they don't want to do no. those things. Right. Like I've always been very honest. Like I don't want to have children. Yeah. That's always been a, a truth of mine. I've never wanted it. I'm not really one for caring yeah. for things in that, in that way. Um, yeah. It's different when you have to, to be a caretaker essentially right. to someone instead right. of just giving your emotional support. Whereas, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You, you yourself have to know how much you can give Yeah. and how much of that give is what you want to give and how much of that is being drained from yeah. you. And right? some people in society may say that's selfish, but in fact, I think what's more selfish is, is having the child knowing that you can't give it what it needs. Right. There's, in my opinion, nothing more selfish than having a child because the world tells you that you should, even when you know that that's not your truth. No. And, you know, we're, we're in a generation now that asks themselves the very scary question, does it make sense to have a child with the condition of, you know, where the planet is at? You know, like we're like we're actually asking those questions. Yeah. It's fair for people to say, you know what? I don't think I want to do that. Yeah. It's not for me. You know, the ozone layer, the sea level rising, the like world just, hunger. Yeah. It just you know. might not be for me. No. <laughs> for whatever reason, you know? <laughs> and you don't have to justify it. Like that's the other thing too, is that you don't have to tell people why. Yeah you do or don't 
want to have a child. You do or don't want to get married. You do, you do or don't want to have a career or this or that. You know, I'm just talking about kind of, you know, Claire's struggles in the book here. Those are some of the examples. Mm -hmm. The career, the wife thing, the mom thing. All these different, the roles that society puts you on that you need to fill. It's almost like a timeline of filling these roles. So now I will be the mom and now I will be this. This is proof. This is proof that when you force people, because I think society does force us. Because yeah. if we don't do things a certain way, we become alienated yeah. or we become ridiculed People or whatever think, it may be. What's wrong with you? Why exactly. aren't you doing this? Exactly. So I don't want to hear the argument of like, oh, no one's forcing you to do anything. No, society does. No, there is an underlying tension there of like, yes. well, why aren't you doing this? And right. And this book is proof that when you push someone to do something that they do not want to do, Or that you paint the picture of a perfect life as the antidote to your shitty childhood. Yeah. That this is what can happen to somebody. Yeah. It will be the straw that breaks the camel's back and you will lose your shit. And you will lose your shit. Exactly it. And there's a moment where she says something that I think is so interesting and I think really hard to unpack, but let's try. Yeah. She says, I know happiness is a scam, but (laughs) unhappiness is real. I thought that was really, really interesting given her situation. Happiness is a scam. I think what she means by that is the idea of what people define as happiness. The perfect family, the perfect job in academia, the healthy baby girl, all of that. And then, you know, unhappiness is real, meaning none of those things actually made her happy. And that without resolving the things that had happened in her life, there was no way for her actually to find the real happiness. What is real happiness for Claire Bay no, exactly. Watkins in the book? I don't know. Only she I don't knows. Know it. Yeah, exactly. No, and it, it, it's true. Like, there's no amount of, of stuff that you could shove in your life that will make you feel whole. You're still going to have that gaping, empty hole in your soul, just sucking everything that is, po- quote, air quotes, positive or what you should want out of it. And that's right. exactly what happened to her. Right, and... And there's a lot of talk of of loneliness Mm -hmm. in the book too. But what's interesting is that the loneliness isn't really talked about or addressed when she's on her own, when she's in the Tacopa house alone, when she's, you know, running off by herself. That's not when we're talking about loneliness. We're talking about loneliness when she's with the wrong people. Yeah. Right. And, and there's, and that's a quote in the book too. I think the worst kind of loneliness isn't when you're alone, but when you're with the wrong person. This gaping hole beside you is so much worse than you being on your own. Exactly. Like having someone there to fill the space, but someone who doesn't necessarily understand you and what your needs are and, and, you know, what you need to be happy. That is. And we don't learn very much about her husband. No. So we don't know what kind of support system he was or wasn't providing. But But from what I gather, he gives me pretty saintly vibes. I mean, he lets her run off and sends her money and pays for her hotel rooms. And, you know, when she emails him, he responds and sends her more of what she needs. And she's just like, yeah, I'm not coming home yet. Or or, she's not answering any of his texts, emails, nothing. She, she picks and chooses and he's still by her side, you know, making sure that she's okay. And obviously that the baby's being taken care of. Do you think that that is a reflection of him maybe knowing that something like this was inevitable or 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 just coming at some point because there's no shock 
coming no, from his side at all. I feel he like, just lets her go. Yeah, I feel like it has to be. I mean, I think you know when you marry someone, you generally know the ins and outs of them and their family and their history. And I I want to say there has to be moments when you're tipped off by things like certain arguments or certain discussions that you have down the line that just kind of give you the inclination. I feel like she probably was just physically getting more and more restless and he could sense it. Cause there's moments I think early on when she's talking about how he's, you know, saying, Oh, let's go do this with the baby. She's like, no, you take care of it. Bye. I'm going to go do rich bitch yoga now. Bye. Right. Take care of it. I don't care about the photos. Nothing. She was just very detached. And I feel like he could sense that, especially like if we're talking about normative gender roles, her being the mom and him being the dad, it should have been the opposite. Right. And I'm glad that you brought that up because she mentions in the book, I said, I wanted to behave like a man, a slightly bad one. And before we hit record, as I've mentioned before, we always start talking about the book before because, you know, it's inevitable. But we were talking about, you know, if this book had been written by a man, would we be having this same nuanced conversation? Or we, or on a, I know what I would be saying. I'd be like, yeah. oh, of course he left because he's a piece he's of a shit. And men are pieces of shit and they leave and they don't fucking care and they can't commit and they're trash. That's, 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 that's it would have been the said. shortest podcast episode <laughs> in history. Right? It would have been like, replay all the men shitting talk we've done mm-hmm. and that is on loop. Ep- on loop and that's this episode. Actually, it would have been the longest podcast episode <laughs> because I'm constantly saying these things. No, we just set the bar so low for men right that we wouldn't have been surprised now that it's a woman that birthed this child and is running away and and facing her demons now is when we're like oh people are not used to this kind of story people are not used to a woman not wanting to take on this kind of role people are definitely not used to a woman take choosing to take on the role and then being like never mind (laughs) you know that's that's different and and I have so much sympathy for her. Again, maybe because I'm a person who doesn't want to have a child, I have so much sympathy for her because I can't imagine being in a situation where I go through with it and then I'm like, holy shit, I knew all along I didn't want yeah. this and now I'm in it. What the fuck do I do? I would spiral too. No, same. And that's one of my biggest fears. I mean, I remember growing up, you know, your set society with all these timelines and and ignorantly enough, I'm like, yeah, I'll go to college, I'll get a job, I'll have a kid by 25. 25 eight. <laughs> Girl, that came and went. That shit came and went. And then my, you know, my family being a big Cuban family constantly asks and, you know, when are you having a kid? I'm like, oh, maybe 27. 27 came and went. That's actually when I got married, whatever. I was living in sin before with my husband. <laughs> And then, you know, Shame on you. 30 came and went. Now it's 33. And I'm like, maybe 35, maybe 35 might be the year. Cause I just, that's what, that's honestly what scares me. When I read that her life completely changed and she fucking lost it after she had a kid and she's like, I'm not myself. I was like, oh, that's what I'm scared of too. And it's okay <laughs> to be afraid of that. I think that that's what makes this book so brave is that because yeah. we don't hear these stories often enough we think that we go through things alone and that's always been the power of women coming together and having honest conversation i mean we touched on that last episode when we were talking about the the nuns in the abbey of matrix you know how 
when Marie, the abbess, started, you know, being the one to hear confession, that the women were more honest and that they were more open mm -hmm. because they felt that the ears of a woman were more sensitive to the yeah. things that they wanted to express. So I think that this book is, is proof of that, too. You know, I read it and I, sure. and I felt like I was reading something that was going to, to help me, mm -hmm. you know, to help me understand not only the author, not only her plight, not only the character, but understand me. And as we said at the very beginning, this book is a mirror in yeah, so many ways is. of who we are as women, what are, what these challenges mean to us as adult women, and for us to be honest with ourselves about what we want, what we don't want, and to never budge. Yeah, and I think that we're just so conditioned to to not be honest with ourselves, just to stick it to where everyone else is going keep up with the Joneses, paint this pretty picture, make sure your life is perfect, that we never do have those self-reflective moments where we sit down and we say, is this what I want? Right. Is this what is best for me? Right. It, it's never, you know, it never happens. And that's so crucial. And that's, if there's anything that people take from this book, from this conversation, from this episode, from our just the, the messages that we try and put through on this podcast, I think that that's the one that I want people to take away. Is this what you want? Sit your ass down yeah. and, and think about what you want. And then when you find that knowing, mm -hmm. stick with it. Because I promise you, that is what's going to make you happy. That's yeah. going to push you in the direction of your truth, mm -hmm. of, your, of the way that you're supposed to contribute to this world. You can only really ever do it well if, it's, if it is your truth. Yeah. You know, exactly. it's so, so fundamentally important. I'm glad that this book ties into episode one because episode one was, you know, nonfiction memoir. This is auto fictional. So it's a really just, it's a different take, but just as powerful. It resonates, I think in, in a very similar way, but more as like a cautionary tale. Is that yeah. a fair way of I, putting I think it? Cautionary is, is right because while it is a, a big mirror and very relatable it's on a huge hugely different scale than what i think most of us will encounter throughout our lives absolutely i mean you and i were reading something we're like man we have it so good yeah and like i don't come from like a super traumatic childhood you know what i mean like we yeah. all have childhood traumas we all have bad memories it's fine but but this is i mean really you know when you pick up this book you you will understand what we mean it, this is a whole other level of just sad it's just it's sad. sad i feel it's very sad. sad for her yeah and I think that that's a really good segue into a conversation about how poverty is depicted in this book, oh and my poverty God. in America in general, which is something that me and you talk about all the time. All the time. And she says very succinctly in this book, she says, when I went to go visit my sister, right, because she does go to Las Vegas, as we mentioned, this is her, 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 her coming home moment, <laughs> and her sister's living in this raggedy ass horrible fucking apartment covered oh, in roaches roach ridden apartment just i mean the way it's described the it walls makes you are crawling oh god <laughs> i think i put the book down like when i was reading i was I, like oh i can't I really handle itchy. this right now it was so gross i'm like <laughs> yeah i was like let me let me walk over to my super clean delicious kitchen and like make a cup of tea i was like i can't i can't do this right now it was a lot but she says so succinctly she says i was reminded how expensive it was to be poor mm-hmm Preach. And if that doesn't sum up America <laughs> and poverty in America, I don't know what does. I mean, she goes into how because her sister is poor, she is paying more for her home, right? Because mm -hmm. she's 
essentially an, an eternal renter. Yeah. She'll never be able to buy a home. Her mortgage would probably be less, but because she's in so much debt from being poor, she can't get accepted for, you know, a mortgage. Yeah. So what you have is this reflection of, you know, what it means to be poor in America. And here in the United States, I mean, one of the issues that I have is that when you're poor, you're essentially, you're, you're paying the price for like a, a crime that you didn't commit. Yeah. You know, and there's so little compassion and understanding for poor people in this country, simply because people don't understand the system. No. And people don't all. understand, and this is just me being, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a full on anti-capitalist, you know, but I will say this, capitalism is, is, is man-made. So this idea of not regulating it no. is actually quite silly because in a fully capitalist economy, you don't have a thriving middle class. No. Only policy can do that. And a lot of people in this country don't understand that. And there's no empathy for people who are poor. And it's so expensive to be poor. It's so expensive. And it's so hard to be poor. And it's also like you have to be the right type of poor, right? Yeah, you, exactly. you have to be poor <laughs> enough, but not too poor to be able to get food stamps and all this other bullshit. The and second you have a, a cent pay increase, it... it throws off the scale and right. then you can't get your food stamps, but you need those food stamps to right. live. So then you just get into more poverty. It, it's bizarre. Right. And, and, and just the way that we very flippantly talk about mm -hmm. people who, you know, are in need of welfare in this country, how it's part of our vocabulary. I also think it's really interesting and horrific. For example, you know, it's always people who are, who are on food stamps who get called out. You yeah. know, oh, this person's on food stamps, but I saw them at a basketball game. Yeah. What the exactly. fuck? I saw they were buying this with those food stamps. Why should they be buying that? They right. should be buying this instead. They're poor. This, this like imposing of judgment on poor people for how they spend what little money they have, I think is actually comparable to what we do to women and how this novel mm -hmm. tackles the vilification of women. Yeah. The vilification oh, a woman of has to here. do this. Poor people have to act like this. The vilification of poor people. Exactly right. And I and I actually think it's really brilliant that the author decided to create that conversation within the book because it's such a natural comparative. I hadn't really thought of it like that no, before. It, is. it opened my eyes in a really, really unique way. I, I loved that. No, it was great. And I double majored in sociology. So I flex, spent... Flex, girl, flex. flex I've been flex, waiting for you to flex with these flex, facts. Flex, yes. I double majored. So, no, and I remember reading all my textbooks and going through everything, and I feel I was the most sad those, you know, several semesters that I was reading about all this because there is literally close to nothing that poor people could do to make up for that imbalance of wealth. It's like if you are born poor, the chances are you're going to stay poor yes. the rest of your life. This this yes. generational wealth for them isn't a thing. Right. They're just going to stay at the bottom, you know, living yeah. off food stamps or whatnot. Like there's very little you could do. You weren't, it's a gamble. You're lucky where you're born because that's going to yes. dictate the rest of your life. Well, that's what we talked about when we, when we read Exit West. Yes. Right? That, yes. That, the difference between you and a refugee is that just one person was lucky enough to yeah. be born in a stable country. That's so sad. So it's so it's it's exactly what you're saying. And I mean, I guess my question to you with your sociology background is, is it fair? I mean, I say this all the time, but I just want like your your take on it. 
you know, is it fair for me to say that the American dream is just absolute fucking bullshit nonsense and I'm sick and tired of people fucking saying that. It's not real. It's not fucking real. Yes, it's just like you said. So pretty much since the Reagan administration in the 80s, there's been a systematic changing of rules within our financial systems to get government out of free market. And that's a problem because without those rules and regulations and interventions, you know, stock markets can go up in the United States, but the wage inequality still continues to skyrocket. And that takes away tons of opportunity for the middle class and does not give them a seat at the table. There is nothing left, essentially. The middle class, that whole 50s, 60s American dream of, yes, I will get married and get a good job with a pension and right. my, my 2.5 kids. And yeah. it just doesn't exist. That was easy to do then because wages are not what they are now. Wages have stagnated. Back then you could have one person working and that would pay for the entire house. That is not the case anymore. That in part has to do with the fact that large corporations, for example, they no longer pay taxes in the way that they did, you know, post-World War II era. That was one of the shining beacons of hope in American history. You know, people ask me all the time, like, oh, you criticize the United States a lot. And like, who should we be like? Oh, I'm not saying we should be like another country. I'm saying we should be like who we were post-World War II. We should do better. That is when we were doing good. And so that's why you have a generation of people who believes that that's still somehow yes. the reality and it's fucking it's not. It's so not. If I have to see another millennial meme of oh. my parents, yes, we could afford this right. house and this on this right. salary. And then me, should I buy this Hot Pocket or, or you know, overdraft on my on checking my, account? <laughs> should I put guac on my Chipotle? <laughs> no. Can no. I afford this $2 upcharge? I mean, and you you and I have seen a lot of these stupid articles, you know, like, oh, millennials aren't having babies. Bitch, I can't buy a house. How can and I afford have a, a fucking baby? baby? <laughs> Fuck you. You know, it, it, it just, it pisses me off to no end because no. it's such a clear misunderstanding of the economy that people are currently living in. People cannot afford to live their lives based on the minimum wage. $15 no. is the floor. It's not the ceiling. Right now we're fighting for the floor, the floor. For the floor. And it's one of those things that giving someone else a better chance at a livable wage life doesn't take anything away from you. And at I all. think that's one of the things I hear the most from my Republican family members and friends. That, oh, well, why should they do that? They didn't go to school. They shouldn't get that. I, I went to school. I'm like, that has nothing to do with you. It also just proves that you're underpaid too, you idiot. It's like, it basically flips the scale. So then everyone gets paid more. Everyone could thrive. Right. As someone with a double master's degree, should I get paid more than maybe someone who doesn't? Yeah, Yeah. I'd say so. But that doesn't mean that I'm against people getting paid a living wage. Exactly. That's bullshit. It's it's the most bizarre argument. It just proves that I too am underpaid. You get what I'm saying? It just means that all of us need... All of us need a fucking raise. Well, was the country that was going to give everyone raises recently? Was it Germany? It was I Germany. Per- who's, I think it's going to be 25% of their workforce is going to be getting a, a, a major pay raise. Um, I forgot the details of it, but I was just reading that on CNN the other day. Yeah. These are going to be federal workers. And, you know, that's, that's, that's what needs to be happening. Yeah, just these kind of, you know, 
different train of thought, thinking, policy making that just lifts us all up instead of making right. us slaves to capitalism with a dream we'll never achieve. We are all right. so much closer to being fucking homeless than, than being are, Jeff Bezos. Yeah, Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Like, stop writing for Jeff Bezos, people. Yeah. Like, yeah. you're not going to be Stop worshipping the ground that billionaires walk on. The only reason that billionaires exist is because we live in a society and within an economic system that allows for them to exist. Exactly. It's not because they're any brighter or more incredible than anybody fucking else. The reason that Jeff Bezos can have as much money as he has is because he has an entire army of people working to enrich him on a daily exactly. basis. People really need to educate themselves on these issues because... The less empathy and understanding we have of people, of working class people, the longer people are going to be voting against their own interests. It's insane. It's like roaches for raid. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And it's so frustrating. And, and I think that this book does an incredible job of proving yeah. how when you are growing up in those circumstances or you are exposed to those circumstances, that getting out of that is incredibly so hard. hard. And she does a good job, right? Because she becomes an academic. She yeah. becomes a writer. I mean, she, she does a great job. She does a great job. And she, and you, especially, I think for me and you, it was really easy to see that comparison when the sister came yes. in, into the book as an adult. We were like, oh, okay, the sister's really struggling, right? Working at a casino. And then you have this one over here who's, you know, a professor and a writer. And she seems to be doing better for herself economically or yes. socially speaking. So you really see that. But the, the book is brilliant in that sense, too, in that it, it, it creates that comparative. There are just so many comparatives in the book that make it easier for the reader to understand these issues, whether or not you realize that she's even kind of teaching you these things. Yeah. It's so subtle. It's, it's so, so subtle. smart. No, and it's great because if, if you didn't read the book and you saw these two characters side by side, you know, she's getting paid great, has tenure at a university, she's a writer, her sister is, you know, working the slots, working at a casino, living in a roach motel, right. looking at both of them society would look down at the sister and it's like they're both just as fucked up right as each other right they're both they're both in the need same. of help yeah and society has a really hard time helping women in need mm -hmm. because women in turn because of that have a hard time asking for it yeah no we never ask and that's help. a big part of the problem right and i think that the more that we lean on each other the better we're all going to be and so i i would actually like to conclude the portion of the conversation about the book with just just talking about and acknowledging how strong women are. We don't yeah. get enough credit. Women don't get enough credit for how unbelievably strong we are and how much we hold down and how much we do and how incredible you know we are. And there's this really kind of depressing, but also I thought, harrowingly funny moment when she's talking to this guy Noah who's a guy that she is, is from her past but she's rekindled things mm -hmm. with him right so to speak I don't want to talk too much about Noah no, because no. he's an interesting character on his in, you know, on his own but she says I told Noah about Ohio and about the abortion where I soaked through pads watching the Sopranos thinking men are weak <laughs> And I was laughing when I read that because I can picture her like sitting down in front of a TV, you know, like wearing like a blood soaked yeah. pad because she just had an abortion. And 
just thinking to herself, like, look at me. Like, a man could never handle exactly. this shit. Never. You know? Never in a million years. Never in a million years. Like, women, not only are we unbelievably strong, and I shouldn't even have to say this, but we're also nine times out of ten going through these struggles silently. Mm-hmm. Or at least men don't know about half the struggles that no. we go through. No. And that that particular moment for me was just so badass. And I And I... And I hope that women out there who hear this, who have ever sat through a moment like that, who have done with their body what they need to do, women who have chosen because they've had the opportunity to choose, you know, let's never forget that that choice is constantly on the ballot box. It's now in the hands of our court. On December 1st, Roe versus Wade could potentially be overturned. And if that happens, I promise you, I will be running down the streets of this city, yelling and crying and just, I don't even know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to lose my shit. And so this is just, I, I would like to just kind of maybe dedicate this episode and this book and this conversation to women who have had to make that choice, which is by the way, one in every four women in this country and women who have had to do it alone. Yeah. That's who I would like to dedicate this to. Because women are unfucking believable. We are literally superheroes we are. in our own right. Preach. And that's how, that's how I would like to conclude Amen. this portion <laughs> of the episode. So in case you didn't fucking know, you didn't know. women are superheroes. <laughs> Go and thank one today. Thank a woman today. That's your assignment. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. And now let's enjoy. I've been, so I've been enjoying it. It is so delicious. It is. I knew you'd love it. So, um, so I've done a lot of campaigns with um, Rivera y Rueda. It's two winemaking regions in north of Spain, and they are delicious. So I figured I'd bring a Rueda Verdejo here onto the show um, because with this book taking place mainly in the desert. Um, Rueda actually has a very similar climate. It is like that planet on Star Wars that's all sandy and shit. Like it's pretty much desolate and and big open plains and just it just set me there when I thought about her, you know, rummaging through the desert f- trying to find herself. Yeah, yeah. It, it gave me those vibes. So I figured this was a perfect one for it. And, you know, I just wanted to highlight a region that's always near and dear to my heart. So Rueda is Spain's most famous white winemaking region, and um, it sits, uh, this region in particular, Rueda, sits along a river that heads um, east to the Atlantic Ocean, and it's, like I said, the stark climate is insane. It's dry, and they have these, you know, temperature shifts where it could be, you know, 100 degrees during the day and 50 degrees at night it's such a stark contrast so it just reminded me of her and her little tent at the house air quotes house sitting there (laughs) (laughs) and because of this you know stark temperature change and the climate Verdejo has really thrived there it's an indigenous grape and it has mutated and shifted over years to adapt to this crazy ass climate that's so interesting yeah, it, it's very much a strong grape. It's been around for a thousand years. So it is an OG Spanish grape. It's as strong as women. 
It is. It's very strong. That's when. <laughs> and it pretty much ripens early. It's very drought resistant because as you can imagine, they don't really get much rain there if it's, you know, deserty climate. Right. And um, so wines that are labeled Rueda, as this one is, usually need to have a certain percentage of Verdejo grape, 85%. Yes. at the minimum if you're going to go. Like I've said before, a lot of the regions in the old world, the wines are labeled by the region instead of the the grape. So that's a good way of knowing. Sometimes they'll mix it with like Sauvignon Blanc and a couple other grapes that are in vogue. But if you're looking for Rueda, it's probably going to be Verdejo. And these wines really have a wide range. The one that we're drinking today is more crisp. I'm sure it's, I need to look it up, but I think it's probably more like stainless steel, but they do make some that are age-worthy in oak and that have more um, complex, like creamier notes that would taste more like a new world Chardonnay or really well-made old world Chardonnays. Cause you still get the vanilla and the creaminess, mm-hmm. but not like California butter bomb. And they also, I learned, I haven't had one yet, but they also make it um, espumante. So sparkling wine. Ooh. Yes. So you could literally find any type of Verdejo for your liking. I think that guy actually at the gym, um, Daniel, loves Verdejo. He always looks at my my post when I post about oh, well, then it. We, he, well, then we have to have a, a drink with him soon. Yes, we need to bring it. And um, they're not expensive at all. These wines, you'll find them for like $15, under $15. They're okay. a great value. And it's not... I don't want to scare anyone by, you know, if they go and they find one that's $12 that they're going to think, oh, this is bad quality. They're all really well-made wines Mm -hmm. and excellent um, quality per price ratio. So you really can't go wrong with any of them that you find. This one in particular is made by uh, Bodega Carlos Moro. He's a winemaker, very passionate throughout his life and has made his mark making lots of different wines in different regions of Spain. Um, And this one, the grapes are grown in the vineyard of La Brittera, sorry. I'm like, I'm reading it for the first time now because I'm like, I've had this wine before, but I've never done extensive research on this wine. I just know that it's yummy. It's delicious. <laughs> it's so good. And with this wine in particular, the, the plot where it's grown, the soils are very gravelly. So it helps um, give grape maturity and kind of a, a minerality to it. I will say I love this wine in kind of comparison to the wine that we had for the last episode, because that one was all about the roots and, you know, how, you know, probably there was no irrigation, yes, right? As you had mentioned, so that. you're, so they're really relying on it being a pretty uh, rainy place. Yeah. And this is the opposite. You're talking oh, about a totally grape opposite. that's just like living in a completely kind of desolate. So I actually just love that we didn't do this on purpose, but no, it, it happens to be that, you know, from last episode to this episode, the way that the grapes are you know thriving is a completely different environment exactly. it's really cool no and these grapes too um most of the vines dig deep too to find water since there is none and i know that a lot of the winemakers sometimes in the vineyards will will dig out wells so that when it does rain it traps the water and the roots could get to it because it is such a just a stark difference of a climate yeah 
And no, it's quite amazing. And there's some vines there in Rueda that are 100 years old. And, and most of these vines that are that old didn't get phylloxera back in the day, this, this terrible bug that brought disease to the vines. So basically okay. decimated so many vineyards across the world. Um, but some of these vines are like predate that, that they didn't get it because the roots are just so there mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. dry. But yeah, so this wine in particular um let's let's taste it let's go through the the notes it's kind of like pale yellow with a hint of green it smells so pretty mm -hmm. it's like fresh it's a little floral yeah right yeah there's floral in it kind of like lemongrass mm -hmm. lemongrass for sure there's like some tropical notes on the nose too. Mm -hmm. That's why I feel like if you like Sauvignon Blanc, you would like this wine. If you like Alberino, yes, um, lemon, you would like this wine. I yeah, I mean, you're, you're naming the ones that I like and I'm really enjoying this because Yay! I like the ones that are very refreshing that you can have outside in the heat, but that still, you know, pack a punch. This, yeah, this is, this is really mm -hmm. delicious. I've enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And you could, so this is the fresh kind of style that we're tasting. But the other night I grabbed one from 305 Wines and that one actually was aged in oak and it, and it tasted, mm. it tasted different. There was more hints of vanilla. It was more toasty. It was, it was almost fuller, but it was still very delicious. So it shows that like, just because you're grabbing a Vendejo from Rueda doesn't mean that they're all going to taste like this. Right. There's a variety. And, and I mean, everyone could grab yeah. something. And I think like, I lean in the direction of this yes this is totally up your yeah your this vibe. is definitely more my my vibe yeah and you could pair this with seafood you could pair it with um asian food it has that same vibe um or on its own yeah as we talk about this this fucked up girl <laughs> <laughs> this poor you know i love you but this i've chosen girl. darkness oh my god <sighs> i mean i i send all my love to her She's obviously doing great now, right? I mean, she we're sitting here reading book. her book. So I'm reading her book. So she's she's doing better. And I mean, we never really comment on this, but um, this is a kick-ass cover and title. It is. It really is. I try not to, you know, judge a book by its title or by its cover or whatever. But I mean, if you do, this is actually, like, I get why you would. Go, go on our Instagram and you'll see this cover. It is badass. There's like... A cactus on fire, a desert scape, the, the but it's type. got like it's got like a pointillist sort yes. of detail to it. And 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 I'll be honest too, I've I've posted I posted a picture of me reading the book like a like maybe like a week ago or something, and the amount of people who were like, Oh, that title sounds so intriguing. You know, like everyone was just kind of into the title. I'm like, yeah, I love the title. I love you, but I've chosen darkness. It really encompasses, you know. It, it encompasses the book. It encompasses it her 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 journey. It encompasses the fact that yeah, she left, and but there's love there, and it was a love for herself that needed to be chosen. And I, yeah, I mean, I just if you're gonna judge a book by its cover or its title, this is not a bad place to start. No, it's not. It definitely resonated with me because growing up, I had a bit of darkness, and I think I still do. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, think I think we think all have so. a bit of we darkness. We all do. We all do. <laughs> And yeah, you, I mean, we were very different. I was like, I was just into school. Like I, when I was like really young, I was like high school and stuff. Like I was in like Spanish honor society, English honor society. I was just like such a good student. I didn't care about really anything other than just being good at school. And, and 
That was not your story. No, no. Well, I was good at school. I also subscribed uh, to the school of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And that was my vibe. And that's... Good for you. That's very much Look where you live in. Live, live large. Look no, you live in. I thought I was bad. I thought I was naughty, but I was nothing compared to her. Oh no, 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 no! I mean, but this is a whole other level. She leveled up. She leveled up. She leveled she up. Really and did. you know, I actually, I hate to like go back, but I think this is worth mentioning. At the very, very, very beginning, we talked about how this is auto-fictional, but there are also letters in there oh, by her, her mother. mother. Yeah. And those are the ones that I'm assuming are fictional, but I do not know that. I have yeah, no way to fact-check that. But her mother was an interesting character. The letters were, are written in backwards chronological order or presented to us. Which I'm backwards. assuming it's because that's how the aunt put them in the box. Yes. So the earliest would be at the bottom. Yes. And the- Yes, and she just read them that way. Yeah. And so we had so to experience them, them the way. same way that she did. So actually, that's a good point. So maybe they're not fictional. Who knows? Who knows? So you're right. I had not thought of that. That's a really interesting point. And the mother, uh, she's she's an interesting character. We get to know her fairly well when mm-hmm. she's a young person writing these letters to her cousin, Denise. And I wanted to just take a moment and, and, and talk about her because she unfortunately passes away due to her opioid addiction. Yeah, it, it's it's a tough pill to swallow, but you you know it's going to come. No pun intended there, Alexa. <laughs> Shit. I mean, <laughs> excellent choice of words. She, she, one of the most touching moments for me was actually when Claire talks about her mother's death and says, you could say my mother, and then goes on all these different ways of describing yeah. how and like why her mother died ways yeah she's like you could say that my mother was sick you could say that my mother committed suicide you could say that my mother was killed by the Sackler family uh it was just it was a really touching moment and that goes back to our conversation about poverty yeah and the fact that the opioid crisis has decimated many 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 communities especially struggling communities and I guess this is just a moment for me to plug another book that I've read this year that I genuinely believe is going to be my favorite nonfiction book of 2021 empire of pain this is an unbelievable book it's written by patrick radden keith and it's the story of the sackler family it's three generations of sacklers they're the ones who essentially created the opioid crisis and the things that they were willing and able to do in order to put opiates in the hands of struggling Americans is unbelievable. And the book is not only about the actual opioid crisis, it's about them. It's about how they did it. It's about how they created their wealth. It's the reason why if you go to the Brooklyn Museum, there's still a Sackler wing there. You know, Um, this is this is an unbelievable story. And so it just it just I wanted to point that out because it brings everything together yeah you know it's a full circle it's there. a full circle you know it's it's not a coincidence that you know claire v watkins's mother was a victim of this crisis and how all of these things are linked how all of these things are connected and how you are punished when you are poor yeah. and and i hope that what this book does as you're drinking this delicious wine i hope that what it does is it it allows you to find a moment to reflect on your level of compassion and empathy because that's the only thing that's going to save us. It's the only thing that's going to pull 
the United States out of this horrible crisis, which is the fact that we just don't seem to give a shit about each other. And I think that it's important to judge a nation based on how well it treats its poor, and we're doing a real shit job of that. Super shit job. It's, yeah, no, I agree with that. And it, it just goes back to what we've talked about in past episodes, that it's important who you vote for, and that they align with lifting the country up and, and not tearing it down. <laughs> yes, and there is no, there is no perfect politician. There oh, no, is never. no politician that you're going to vote for that is the perfect person. It, it's never going to happen. Never. It's never going to happen. It, you know, they're, they're going to disappoint you in and out of office. But the truth is that some of them are in it to, at the very least, not destroy the fabric of our society. And I take it pretty seriously. You take it pretty yeah, seriously. Some are in vote. it to, you know, champion democracy. Yes, that is, I think, that's the main issue now, isn't it? It's it whether is. or not you believe democracy should survive in this country or whether it shouldn't. And remember, the reason that we are about to see a court case potentially, potentially overturn 50 years of precedent, Roe versus Wade, the reason that we're about to see that is because a president was elected who was able to put in multiple conservative justices to the court and... That's why you need to remember that who you vote for matters because it all trickles down to every single one of us. And so, again, we dedicate this episode to those women. We want to raise awareness of these issues. Never stop voting. Never stop yelling. Never stop being angry. Never stop expressing yourself. Never stop self-reflecting. And always take action because I genuinely believe that it's women who are going to save us it, yes. it always is it's always it's always women and nine times out of ten it's women of color and yeah. when women of color do well we all do well mm -hmm. so let's just emphasize that never forget that pop take hot take that's my pop take hot take <laughs> there have been a lot of pop takes today yes. that one that one, that one. protect one. black and brown women love them cherish them because they are who saves us every fucking time well, cheers, cheers to that, to that for sure well, this was such a wonderful read. I loved it. I might have self-reflected too much with it and, and going back to um, my childhood and things that I did. Love it. My little demons there. But love the book. This wine paired wonderfully. I think, you know, it tied all well together. And I'm so glad we had this conversation. If you guys, too, love this conversation, please make sure to follow us, subscribe to our podcast, rate it, give it five stars. We deserve it, don't we? And uh, make sure to follow us at on Instagram at Pouring Over Pages Podcast. Um, make sure that you go to our Etsy shop. It's the holiday season. Give someone a great tote or sweater or crop top. Uh, we love it. It just helps us buy more wine and books to share with you and join in the conversation. Feel free to DM us, email us, and just keep it going because, you know, we love it. We love talking about this stuff and, you know, inviting you guys into, into our friendship to mm -hmm. talk about these major issues. Yep. These conversations are really for us as much as they are for all of you. They're I so think. cathartic. They are. Okay. They're very cathartic. They are. <laughs> they are. Um, the next book we will drop on our Instagram. It's going to be more of an upper. So mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. in time for the holiday season. We want people to be happy. Yes. Every holiday season. So I guess that's that's the hint is that it'll be a holiday themed book. So we hope that you'll 
read along. And yes, definitely more of an upper. More of an upper. You don't sure. <laughs> for sure. It's hard for a book not to be an upper after this after book, this to be honest. One. After this. I guarantee you though, like I'm a critic and I love this book. Like I love it's this a downer, book. but I fucking loved it. I loved it. So I loved it. I'm so glad don't I'm have so that glad you, chose this. Don't have that turn you off. No, not at all. It was fucking killer. Please pick it up and let us know what you think because we always want to hear from you. We want to know your thoughts on these books. We want to know your thoughts on these wines. So let's just keep the conversation going. Yay, cheers.